The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take a personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Welcome to Stock Take. My name's Gaurav Sodi. Joining me today is analyst Graham Whitcomb. Hey, Graham. Hey, Gaurav. And with us also is our founder and editor, John Addis. Hello, John. Morning, Gra- Gaurav. Graham. <laughs> Let's do that again, right? <laughs> Morning, Gaurav. Morning, Graham. There we Morning, go. John. There we go. We can <laughs> fix that in post anyway. We can fix anything in post. We can say whatever we like and it can all be stitched together later on. Don't you worry about it. Now, boys, we've got a bit of a EV special today. I'm going to be talking a little bit about um, lithium and Pilbara minerals in particular. Then, Graham, really keen to hear about Waypoint REIT, which is a owner of potentially EV stations, but at the moment, petrol stations. And John... Hey, that just, something... it just occurred to me that they're kind of a hedge. You're betting on one against the other, or at least some people would think so. I wonder which way that will go. We'll get to that. That's quite interesting. And John, this is a, a, a topic we've discussed internally a lot, so looking forward to your feedback as well. But let's begin with, um, where I guess, where the boom has begun, which is with lithium. Now, I would say about 12 months ago, or even longer than that, maybe 18 months ago, we were getting so many questions about lithium. And the questions weren't so much, can you explain lithium? Why is this price moving? It's it, it was, why aren't you recommending or covering lithium stocks? These companies are all booming. The price is booming. Why are you missing out? And it's not uncommon to get those sort of questions and those sort of demands from, from people. And often when we get them, we uh, it, it's a fantastic signal that the, the market is at a feverish, bubbly, euphoric high. Um, and I will say yeah. that I'm getting them now about uranium as well, getting a lot of comment about uranium. Why aren't you covering uranium stocks? Are you going to be covering uranium stocks? Platin has doubled. Don't you know the world is going to run on uranium? All the all this certainty comes in with the confidence of higher share prices. And what we're seeing with uranium today is an echo of what we saw with lithium last year. And the a lot of these booms end in the same way with steeply falling share prices and sagging um, sagging enthusiasm. And that leads us neatly to where lithium is today. Lithium prices, processed lithium prices have fallen about 80% over the last 12 months. Uh, lithium concentrate prices, which is a intermediate product before you get to the battery grade material, that's what most miners produce, a concentrate. They've fallen about 50-60%. And so Share prices have fallen um, not as much as that, but they have fallen a long way. No longer get questions about lithium companies anymore. And and the, sh- the most shorted stock on the entire ASX is Pilbara Minerals, which is the, the largest pure play lithium business um, on the ASX and, and possibly in the world. Um, so Two good I have intuitive indicators there, I think. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. And look, I, I don't mean to sort of, um, I'm, I'm not having a go at people who are asking questions. This is a, a natural curiosity. Uh, I think the point I'm making is that the market gets carried away at the top and things that are rising just garner so much interest. Um, and share prices is what feed enthusiasm. And when share prices fall, that's what leads to neglect and neglect leads to opportunity. So what you want to do as a contrarian investor is to 
try and, and fight the urge to, to buy things when they're hot and everyone's looking at them and everyone's excited about them and then come back to them when people aren't looking at them and when there's less enthusiasm about them. And, and that's what we're, we've done with, with lithium and, and that's what we're doing with Pilbara Minerals. Pilbara Minerals is now an interesting business to look at. And I think it's actually one of the, uh, the best um, hard rock lithium assets in the world and it appears to be very reasonably priced. The very curious thing about this, gentlemen, and is that 15% of the equity is being short sold, by far the largest short position on the ASX. Yet this company has 30% of its market share in cash. It's not something yeah, you isn't see. Yeah, that just crazy? Often. Yeah. Yes. It, it, I remember seeing, uh, seeing that. Yeah. I agree. I remember James Carlyle explaining it once and being like, he's not afraid of heavily shorted stocks because you've got guaranteed buyers there. At some point, these guys have to buy the stock back. No, oh, that's uh, a good depth. Yeah, I did think about that. And like yeah, that, but... especially when you've got one that's loaded with cash, the company itself could be the buyer. It could just be buying back the stock. So mm. it's um, yeah, quite a pool of buyers on the sideline right now, but you know they're there. And it's, it's instructive to think about what the shorters are doing. Um, you know, often short sellers, they, they can be short-sighted, but they're often the most um, hard-edged, um, best researched, best, most knowledgeable investors in the market. You know, think about the famous short sellers, um, the, you know, the Jim Channels in the world, um, the John Hemptons. If you ever hear these guys speak and talk about stuff they're short on, they're not always right, but they are very well informed. And so mm -hmm. I always pay attention well, they're, they're taking an impossible bet. They're taking a silly bet, really. You're right. They've got a lot more to lose. Um, and uh, when they're going public, they have all their reputation to lose as well. Um, so it's worthwhile asking, like, what are the short sellers doing, um, selling so much of this stock short? And I think the answer is that there's a negativity around lithium at the moment. And the best way to express that negativity is by shorting Bulbara in particular. There are other... ASX miners who are short quite a lot, um, lithium miners who are short quite a lot, but nothing is as liquid and as large as Pilbara. Um, the other two big ASX lithium miners are Independence Group and Minres, and both of those have lithium exposures that are diluted by other businesses. So it's not quite the best way to express a view on lithium, whereas Pilbara has the second largest hard rock mine in the world. And all its earnings come from lithium sales. And uh, if you want to be want to bet on lower lithium prices, this is the opportune way to do it. So I, I think what we're seeing in that short position is the market consensus view on lithium prices that they're going to fall or at least stay weak for a while. And That's an interesting point you make about the the other lithium businesses out there being kind of diluted by other things, because then it could be that the shorting of Pilbara is actually people trying to go long whatever those other parts of the businesses are, but they don't want any exposure to lithium, so they're shorting yep. Pilbara to get rid of that portion of the uh, the exposure. So yep. it might be nothing that... to do with lithium, really. It could be neutrality towards lithium that's that's causing it to be shorted so much. Yeah, that's a good point. That's known as a pairs trade, and um, Pilbara is, is a perfect pairs trade because it is exclusively lithium when exclusively lithium is hard to get so i'm sure there's there's quite a bit of that going on as well um does, does but, any of this relate to demand for lithium yes it does um in the the largest market for 
for lithium is China, which has the world's largest sales of EVs, and sales there appear to have fallen off a cliff. Um, and look, that has a lot to do with um, cyclicality inside the Chinese domestic market. The Chinese economy is really struggling, and um, it looks like consumers have have had brought forward lithium sale um, EV sales in the last few years, and those sales have have fallen away quite dramatically. So it's you know the no one's I think the right view is that lithium um, ought to be cheaper now than it was before, and it probably will stay cheaper for a little while longer. But every time we get these kind of um, big swings in prices, we need to ask ourselves, is this cyclical or is it structural? You know, Do we look through this or is this a permanent state of affairs? And I think when it comes to lithium, we've made the case before that the, the metals going from being a very niche mining commodity to being a bulk mining commodity has to attract a whole bunch of capital and will only attract that capital if prices stay above marginal cost for a long time. And that's happened with other commodities, uh, most notably iron ore over the last decade. So I think we're, we're, it's a, there's a good chance we'll see that with lithium. So I'm quite happy to look look through the current weakness and with the proviso that it may last longer than than many people think. Um, so what you really want to do is, is find a lithium business with a, with a bulletproof balance sheet, with a operation that's been proven and with a, a path to production growth, I think. And all those things are evident in, in Pilbara. I'll, I've got a few questions on uh, yep. on Pilbara and lithium, lithium in general. So excuse my ignorance for this, Gaurav, but I'll just pose a question about lithium and its centrality to the battery industry. Mm. Lithium batteries have been around for a long, long time. Um, only now are they really gaining kind of wide-scale adoption. Is there a risk that the money coming into battery technology at large means that there could be a switch to a different kind of battery technology that moves away from lithium? Yes, I think that is a risk. Uh, and I think where you'll see it, lithium has a lot of benefits, but also has a lot of trade-offs. As a piece of chemistry, lithium is both extremely light. It's the lightest metal, but it's also the most reactive. And that makes it really good for mobile batteries, oh. which which means batteries that's kind of need to be light and very powerful, um, perfect for things like um, consumer electronics and really useful for things like cars, where um, where you want really dense amount of energy in the lightest possible packaging. But mm -hmm. if you're thinking about um, batteries for backup storage, um, for power generation, or uh, or for homes, you don't really need lithium. So I, I think I think we're, we're going to see a a more diverse set of chemistries for batteries where consumer electronics and possibly certainly high-end cars are going to maintain expensive lithium chemistries. Cheaper cars are probably going to use uh, more heavy and less energy-dense chemistries that may not require as much lithium. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, in, in my view, the uh, the back backup storage for, for industry, for homes, and for generation, there's no reason you can't use a, a much cheaper, less energy dense method of storage where you probably don't need a lot of lithium. You can use lots of other chemistries that are available, much cheaper to manufacture, and um, don't require all the the fancy packaging you get with lithium. Uh, is, is any of that related to the, the the fall in price, or was that all just kind of bubble irrationality? Or is yeah. there something going on under, uh, apart from China? Is there anything yeah. else in there where there are concerns being expressed? 
about a switch to a different kind of technology that involves less lithium? Well, I think we were in a lithium bubble. I look at where lithium prices were, and it was just insane. Uh, just just for some um, reference, uh, the lowest cost producer of hard rock lithium in the world comes from green bushes. They produce at a cash cost of about $200 a tonne. Lithium was going for $8,000 a tonne, US dollars a tonne. Uh, green bushels was making 90% EBITDA margins, made $10 billion of, of profit last year. But they, the prices were just too high because people weren't considering these nuances about um, uh, you know, changing lithium chemistries, um, cyclicality and demand. Uh, these things were being thrown out. The, the nuances were being thrown out um, under the strength of the overall narrative. And, and that's why I had no desire to buy uh, lithium companies in that sort of environment because it, it felt frothy and it proved to be a bubble. Um, but every bubble is built on a kernel of truth and there is some yeah. truth to um, to yeah. what the what the cheerers of lithium were saying. And, and now's the time to revisit that when prices have collapsed. So what's the specific attractions of Pilbara then compared to any other lithium company around the world? What, what's, what, what is it about that that's got your attention and, yeah. and uh, made you interested? Well, I'm interested in hard rock uh, lithium, um, spodumene, uh, as, as opposed to brines. I just think the, um, uh, the, the risks, especially with permitting, um, with water access, and, um, and brines tend to be in less politically secure locations, whereas hard rock miners are mostly coming out of WA, and WA is the best mining jurisdiction in the world. Um, so I've been more in other, exclusively interested in, in hard rock miners, and there are, there are two great mines in the world. Um, one is Greenbushes, which has a diabolical ownership structure split between four countries uh, over three continents, and... Um, IGO owns 25% of that mine, but it's a non-controlling stake, um, and it is a very good asset, but it is not 100% owned, and they don't have, have control over it. The second best hard rock mine is Pilgangora, which is Pilbara's primary asset. And what makes it fantastic is that it's extremely shallow, so you can actually dig and get great economics. Um, the grades are, are reasonable without being spectacular, but just the sheer tonnage. This thing is is a monster. It is huge, and they haven't reached the edge of the ore body. It's so large, they've stopped drilling to see how big it is because they, okay. just, they have so many decades of resources. They don't need to uh, drill any further. But there's no doubt that this thing can get bigger and bigger. And the other, other thing that's really attractive about it is that um, – uh, it's been in production for, what, 2018, about four or five years now, and it's taken that long, four or five years, for them to figure out the geology and the chemistry to produce the concentrate. They had a lot of teething issues. Building a new mine in a new industry is is difficult, and you have mm. to give companies a bit of room to figure out how to do it efficiently. And, and it looks to me as though Pilbara has figured out their geology. They have worked out their chemistry, and so... Growth from here is really just about replicating uh, what they already know. You don't have to fiddle around with trying to experiment. They had the good fortune of doing that when lithium prices were at all-time record highs. So they could afford to make errors, which they did. They could afford to um, experiment, which they did. Um, and they could do that without um, risking the business. So there was a lot of luck involved in, in the success of Pilbara, but, but having a 
fantastic deposit is just um, is is the basis of that of the success of that company. So the company's over the hump then in terms of production and technology. Yep. In our uh, Monday morning meeting, you, you raved about management a fair bit too, or I took it as that. You seem to be quite impressed by them. Yeah, I mean, I I acknowledge that the the success of Pilbara owes a lot to luck. Um, right. I don't think in a weaker price environment they would never have gotten up and going. They needed a lot of debt. They needed a lot of equity. And they wouldn't have got access to that capital without the strong narrative of, of lithium prices higher yeah. for longer. Kind of like um, Fortescue in a way then. In a lot, terms a of lot like stuff. Fortescue. Mm. Yes. Got got lucky with the timing. Um, but you need that in, in business. You know, you need to be lucky. But they also took advantage of opportunities when they came up. So in 2015 uh, or so, 2014, 2015, uh, somewhere around there, uh, lithium prices were on their knees. Lithium producers were completely neglected. They couldn't really um, access a lot of capital and um, lithium producers were falling all over the place. Um, the tenement that they had was shared with another business called Altura Mining. Altura Mining went bust. And um, and even though Pilbara had no money <laughs> and a lot of debt, um, they still... Um, put their hands up and bought um, the the neighboring property out because they knew it would mean that they controlled the entire Pilgangora um, asset and it just would make sense for them in the future even though it imperiled the company at that point and at that point there was um, there was a bit of surprise there was outrage there was um, protest that they were taking on um, uh, imperiling the balance sheet and risking the company really to make this acquisition at the worst possible time but which I would say that, <laughs> which they were, and all all of that, I would have, I would have been if, if I was a shareholder, I would have made all those same, uh, I would have made raised all those same concerns. I would have had the same view that this is a mistake. You're risking the entire business on this acquisition, but that acquisition was what has made Pil Pilbara the success it has been. It is the consolidation of the tenement lease. It's it's them taking a risk, putting everything on the line. Um, and you know these guys. You want to back a management that does behave that way, even if they turned out lucky. Yeah, yeah. I I think well, they 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 took the risk when it was worth taking the risk, and over the last few years they've been sitting on really high margins and a huge pile of cash, and they've shown discipline when it was time to show discipline. And that's what Probably. I want. I don't want a, a management that isn't isn't prepared to take a risk. I don't think that serves anyone's purpose. Um, but, but certainly not in this industry. No, is that you, you, you want them to take the risk once, but you yeah. kind of don't want them to do it again. To do it again. They, that's I'm, right. I'm that's right. That's right. That's what makes this tricky, right? You you want you want them to take it. Well, you want them to take it when they need to take it and, mm. and understand when they don't need to take it. You want uh, them to take it when it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Without without that um without that bet. Um, the company would not have been the success it is today. And as I said, there's a lot of luck involved here. I mean, in hindsight, that could have turned out to be a, a company wrecking decision. Um, but as a new better shareholder, lucky than smart. <laughs> better lucky than smart. I've, I've yeah, put that on a t-shirt, sell it. That's my motto in mining. Better <laughs> lucky than smart. I mean, there's so much variability in this industry. Um, you have yeah. to acknowledge the variability and, um, and you know, you're, you, you take luck over over smuts any day of the week. Um, I mean, think so, about 
think about um, Fortescue, right? The, a $60 billion business. The only new iron ore miner um, in, what, 60, 70 years. And they had maybe a two, three-year window where could have, they, they made that happen. It, it couldn't have happened at any other time over the last 100 years. And, um, and it couldn't have happened if the CEO founder was a sensible, conservative figure. You know, it only happened because he's a mad dreamer. Um, and that's the kind of person you need when you're building a mining business. But then you need to pivot to be a sensible CEO after you've got all your assets and a lot right. to lose. We try. And for me, Bilber has shown both the initial craziness and the subsequent pivot. So, so that research should be up on the site by the time members hear this. Yeah, should be. A bit nervous about promising that, but yes, it should be. <laughs> <laughs> You've got another 24 hours. 24 hours to do it. That's right. Thank you for that. Thanks for the reminder. That's we should right. um, chug along then. I want to go from uh, from the raw materials, Graham, to, uh, well, another part of the, of, of the value chain. The and company that's who wait. hates them most. <laughs> well, maybe might benefit from them. Maybe not. It's a bit early to say. But tell us a little bit about Waypoint REIT and why this one has been giving you uh, so much pain. Well, it hasn't given much pain, but uh, it's it's an interesting company. It owns uh, 400 or so service stations, mainly the Shell network along the East Coast. And so, yeah, it's a huge beneficiary of the oil economy and of cars that are uh, petrol powered. Uh, it doesn't really want electric vehicles on the road because every electric vehicle sold is someone who's not buying petrol. Damn. But... Uh, but I mean, there's there's also opportunities for it in an as the kind of car fleet electrifies, and yeah, different members were pointing out how they're in the comment section how their uh, mindset changed with electric vehicles and how they still go to the charging stations at these places, and maybe because the charging takes so long that they'll be able to that they'll be forced to spend longer at the service station which then mm. i don't know i can imagine a situation where it turns out a bit like airports where people are there plugging in <laughs> and then having to wander around the shops for an hour uh it won't be exactly like that for charging stations and and i think that's i mean it's such a slow kind of turnover of the, of the fleet anyway that it's going to take 20 years before there's a um well before it becomes really dramatically obvious that there's just not as many uh petrol powered cars on the road i think there's a long runway for waypoint to adapt and it owns all the properties outright so it can update them it can repurpose them i mean these are the corner blocks in all the capital cities they're a fantastic group of real estate it doesn't have to stay as a petrol station over the long term a lot of developers would love to get their hands on them yeah. I like that there's a natural hedge in there as well, because if, if they lose revenue because of electric cars, then surely the value of these um, of these properties goes up because of electric cars, because they on very busy intersections. And when you remove the, the noise discount that comes from combustion engines, you, you must get an uplift in the, in the price of the property, surely. Yeah, probably. And I think people also don't realize that most of a petrol station's income isn't from petrol. It's from all of the high margin snacks and drinks that go in the shop. So the because petrol itself is is just a commodity, it's so low margin for these businesses, 
that, I mean, if petrol sales go down 10%, it's not going to make that big a difference to, uh, what's it called, Daviva, like the, the main tenant of Waypoint. And even then, Waypoint has a fixed rental contract, so it's even less uh, exposed to uh, petrol sales. It's the first time we've had a recommendation like this in a long time, something genuinely good for income investors, I feel. Yeah. Uh, that makes me interested. I know that you can go and get 5%, 5.5% on your money now, but this is at, what, 7.4% unfranked, I think, and... Um, and there's it's trading at less than NTA, and it's a question whether those book values are hold up or not. And you've you've addressed that in your recent piece of research. It's yeah. It seems- the main risk to it is is interest rates. That right. if if interest rates kept on rising from here, it does have quite a bit of debt, and right. uh, so that that could anchor the growth in dividend by quite a lot. Uh, yeah. The rental leases themselves have a built-in kind of 3% escalator for most of the portfolio. So you can pretty much, uh, all things being equal, you can take the dividend yield and add that 3%, and that's probably what your total return will be, kind of in the medium term anyway. Yeah. But interest rates are are a big swing factor. So yeah, if you're buying the stock today, you are getting it at a discount to uh, tangible assets, you're getting a decent yield. But if those interest rates go up another couple of percent, then that's not going to look as attractive uh, after that. So do, there's some risk feel, there as well. It's not a bank account. In, in terms of commercial property, Graham, do you feel as though this is trading below NTA because there's just widespread suspicion about what commercial properties are on the books, uh, the value of them on the books? Or do you feel as though it's something specific more to the kind of discussion that we had in the comment section about the transition to, to an electrical vehicle fit, fleet and what that might mean for the revenues when you have less visitors coming into the shops, which is really what they are. Yeah, I think it's probably more the latter than some sort of view on commercial property. Uh, yeah, I think that the EV thing does probably does have an impact on it. And there's also a lot of investors and funds that just can't own fuel stations. So I think there's a... There's a there's a slight advantage there to those who can, <clears throat> to those who can, and uh, and also I think there's a bit of a bet on it that it is a very interest rate exposed stock. So any any funds or investors who are wanting to bet against interest rates, that's a, a pretty natural stock to own. I think. Uh, so yeah, there's I mean there's there's risk to owning it. It's not some sort of bulletproof company, but. Mm-hmm you're being compensated for those risks as well. You're getting a pretty good yield. You're getting uh, locked-in growth, excluding the interest rate effect. And you're getting the stock at a discount to its property values. And the property values are pretty fairly priced, I think. They're not, it's not, this isn't one of those REITs that has got, I don't know, all these outlandish claims around the appraisals. The, mm. the properties seem fairly priced to me, so... I think that there is a genuine discount to what they're worth. Yeah. And there's a backstop there as well with the, um, if you were to turn the, the land value over and just put apartments or commercial office blocks in there, there, there seems to be a backstop there that doesn't exist in many of these kind of situations. Right. Yeah. That's how I look at it too, is if you've got, if you're owning an office block, you don't have as many options as you do owning a decent sized uh, 
corner block in a capital city. I mean, if you just think about where these are located, because you've probably driven past one today if you've been on the road, uh, they're all the best real estate on every street. So even if they're not uh, service stations at some point, once you get through the remediation costs of the land, because they do take a couple of years to... Uh, to rehabilitate the soil and to get the tanks out and all of that. Yeah. But once you've done that, these are wonderful Fine. blocks of land. So, yeah, the company, I think there'd be enough of a, a gradual shift towards electric vehicles if that is an effect in the long term that, that diminishes the, the rentability of these service stations. Once you get through that remediation cost, uh, yeah, I think the, that all the value is actually there. There's certainly a large discount at the moment, which more than takes into effect into account that remediation cost. Yeah. The other Actually, thing I'll, I'll, I'll add, um, sorry, John. The the other thing I'll, I'll add quickly is that um, uh, the disruption here is not like disruption in, say, traditional media um, or newspapers, where the legacy guys were just completely in denial and blind to it, and let the new technology just walk all over them. You didn't even react to it, right? Just a complete failure of management and imagination. Here, um, Viva, I don't know as well, Graham, but I do know Ampol very well. Ampol has been very alert to the threat, and they have changed their business model quite a lot to um, to adapt to the world that's quite slowly being presented to them. So there's these businesses are changing and evolving to meet the disruption. They're not in denial, which is what we see sometimes with the disrupted industries yeah and it just can't happen as quickly uh you cannot replace all the cars on the road overnight this is going to take decades to actually get through so i mean that gives them a lot of time planning by the time this is through we're probably going to be five ceos into the future so there's going to be plenty of plans and strategy changes along the way uh but what you you what you've got the whole way are great blocks of land and so mm-hmm. all the rest of it is just kind of the current use. But uh, yeah, in the long term, you've got 2 million square meters of prime real estate, basically. It can be changed. Yeah. Just a couple of comments from me, Graham. Um, firstly, your, your, your costs that you wrote in the article about the remediation costs when you buy a petrol station, that accords in my experience. I actually looked at buying a petrol station about eight, nine years <laughs> ago. Well, uh... And it was going to cost about eight hundred to a million to to fix it up, uh, but the the land was huge, so that 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 accorded my experience, my personal experience. And the second thing, just to comment on how members might want to think about this, it sounds strange, but it's a question for you, really, Graham. When I think about the, you go and buy the fuel, and the, you make the money on the chocolate bars and whatever else you sell in the other drinks, it's kind of like cinemas in that respect, but cinemas have adapted too in the way that Graham was saying that Ampol have adapted in their, their food stores. You know, you get different kinds of experiences. You can get seats that where the arms go up and you can rest easily and you can get waitress services in the cinemas. And, mm. and there's an adaption there to what really is a commodity product mm. to ensure that that revenue stream in the cinemas keeps on coming. And, and I kind of think of this situation like that when I read your article this that's what I thought of. Do you think that comparison holds up? Yeah, I do. I think that you're buying more in this business than almost any other. You're buying locations, and mm. those locations can be can evolve over time. 
But the good thing about Waypoint is that it's got these fixed rents in the meantime. So all that adaptation is happening in the background, the electric vehicle revolution and all of that is is a bigger effect to Viva, its primary tenant, than it is to Waypoint. Waypoint has a long uh, horizon to to manage this, to change its portfolio, to sell underperforming sites or to adapt them and change their use. It wouldn't totally surprise me if the company eventually evolves into some sort of uh, property developer for its own properties. It's got this huge no. land bank and yeah. it doesn't, it's not written in some constitution that it has to always be service stations. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if it evolves over time and we come back 10 years or 20 years from now, it's turned out to be this commercial property developer. That was going to be um, my, Sorry, go on, John. I was going to... Oh, just like one final point is that one thing you didn't mention there, Graham, is that even if the transition happens really, really slowly and maybe doesn't go as well as we hope, there is the fact that we're going to have 40-odd million people in this country by 2060 or 2050, whenever it is. Most of them yeah. are going to go Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, there's a lot of population growth. Is There's bipartisan support for this across the political parties. That yeah. surely is a bit of an offset as well. There's a, there's a bit of a backstop there too in population growth. And there won't yeah, be any benefit from dense. No. no. Yeah, exactly. It'll no, benefit from that densification either way. So, yeah. I liked, John, I liked your cinema comparison. I had never thought about that, but that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I quite like it. Um, the other way I was thinking about it was as a land banking operation. Um it reminded me a little bit of Brickworks, um, where the idea is just to own a whole bunch of land and hold it for a long time. You just put a business on the land to sort of pay the um, the costs of, of holding the land and and pay a you know a, a CPI linked return. But the value here is just in in the land over time. And uh, that's how I banking, see it as well. Yeah, land banking is a is yeah. a wonderful business model, um, and it's worked really well for Brickworks, and that's the way I would view this one as well. Yeah. Would you like to own the corner block of the main streets in Sydney and Melbourne? Yeah. Yeah. It's that simple, the question. Yes. And, yes, uh, you're right. You're right. Yeah. All and the rest is, is stuff. <laughs> in, importantly, that question completely uh, removes <laughs> petrols and EVs. I, I think you're 100% right. Yeah. Right? That, is, that is the central question. Yeah. If you like the sound of our investing approach, but you're not yet a member, visit intelligentinvestor.com.au and take a free 15-day test drive of our membership. You'll get immediate access to all our current buy recommendations, model portfolios, and engaging educational research, tailor-made for people who want to manage their own money. That's intelligentinvestor.com.au for a free 15-day trial. No credit card required. Gents, we've got an interesting question that came through on the comments uh, it's probably worth thinking about that a little bit now. John, do you want to just introduce that question and we'll have a go at, at answering it as, as best yeah, we can? That, it's a long, it's a long and, and detailed it's one. It's a long actually. one. I, I won't recite yeah. it because yep. I haven't got the energy this morning. But essentially, it's <laughs> about using traditional value-based financial metrics, return on capital, return on equity, to eliminate poor, poorly performing businesses over time and just look at those high quality businesses that perform well on those kinds of metrics, gen general value investing based metrics, and wait for opportunities to buy those stocks when they're going through a difficult period. Uh, why don't we do more of that? 
And I think the the comment was was that we're we're while we're trying to work out the future in companies like Waypoint Reap and Pilbara, uh, that is a more difficult thing than simply buying high quality companies like Cochlear and CSL when they're going through a difficult period who have got these amazing financial metrics over sometimes decades. Why don't we do more of that rather than the kind of stuff that we've just been talking about? Because it's probably a more secure and more reliable way to make money over time. Um, I I have a problem with that, actually. I I really don't like that method. I I think it... uh... It, 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 it's it's wrong in theory and is wrong in practice. Um, why is it wrong in theory? Because if all you're doing is going through easily available, easily um, um, calculatable, <laughs> easy to calculate uh, financial metrics, <laughs> like well, you don't, you what? Well, I mean, someone with a bit of skill could write an algorithm in in three minutes to do that. You don't need to think. It, it's it's been that that sort of advantage was what you had I think twenty or thirty years ago, before the rise of computer um, computer trading, but you you can't do that anymore. Um, you can't just go through and and pick out a bunch of financial metrics and think you found a great investment. Um, you know it it, it it doesn't work that way. I'll, I'll and, be the de facto member then and just address that. Go ahead. So well, if, yep. if you look at a company like Resmed which yep. probably has exceptional metrics like that. Well, I'm sure it does. Right. And is now going through a bad time. We would use those metrics to try and determine our action and say, this is a high quality business. It's going through a difficult period. This is a time to buy. And kind of, that's what we've done. Yeah, with, I yeah. think it is what we kind of do to some extent. We kind of do that for, stuff. Yeah. What we don't do is publish those metrics in the research. We all know them, but they don't tend to get much of a run in the research. So we do have our list of high quality businesses that are on the top 10 businesses list and we do tend to buy them. And I think ResMed, CSL, some of your stocks, Graham, we recommended lately are examples of doing exactly that. What we don't do is connect that back to the actual metrics that this member raised with us. Maybe we and we also don't do it mechanically. That's that's a big difference yeah. is that yeah. we're not yeah. just running yeah. screens yeah, and then doing that where... Because all of those things are just looking at the the history of the company when what matters is what happens in the future. So yeah, right. you, you can't do it mechanically, but uh, but there are things that we think about. We certainly notice a company that has above average returns on equity or capital over. But that that that's the starting point. That's not the end point, right? That's yeah. that's yeah, the, exactly. That's, the, that's what makes you do your research and think about the business. That's not the where you reach your decision point. You don't find a business with high ROI goes. And then think, oh, this has high ROE. Let's buy it. You you find that business, then you think about, okay, what generates these returns, and is that sustainable? And is the problem today that's providing the opportunity, a la ResMed, is that yep. going to influence those those returns in the future? That's that's the those are the hard questions to answer, and that's what algorithms can't do. Um, I'll, I'll point. I might give you a few examples, right? So think about something like um, Lend Lease, which for a long time was a a blue blue chip business. When I was when I was learning um, investing in the nineties, and Lend Lease was the bluest of blue chips. Every, it was the Macquarie Macquarie Group of today. Everyone had it in their portfolio. You yeah. never got in trouble for buying it. Really fantastic financial metrics, um, and that's just been a disaster for twenty years. Um, and 
the history of, of great financial metrics um, just meant nothing and disintegrated. Iris today is another one. It's got fantastic historic metrics, but it's a basket case. Computer share, another one. Hasn't gone anywhere for 10 years. Um, fantastic historic metrics. Um, I just don't think um, his fa fancy historic metrics mean all that much when you're confronted with a changing world. Yeah, there's no doubt about And that. very often they, they just lead to, I mean, if they're obvious to everyone, then that's kind of priced yes, in. So it's priced in, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, there is to... a balance there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount history altogether. I mean, you, the, how a business has behaved over a long period of time tells you something, but it's a very small piece of, of the puzzle. It doesn't provide an answer. And, and as Graham said, if you're going to get a chance to buy it, you're going to get a chance to buy it because people think maybe there are cracks in the story that delivered those metrics over time. Yeah, that's right. And you have to make an adjustment, as we've just done with Raypoint, uh, Waypoint, and Pilbara about what that future looks like. So you still have to make a call on how you think things are going to play out in the future. Having used the past maybe as a filter to find out what are the high quality businesses in Australia, but we could all sort of reel those off anyway. And I think most members could too. Yeah, You can apply a filter to Iris and see these companies and they're all going to be on the top 10 businesses list. We know what they are. No. Uh, it's just a question of whether... The opportunity to buy them uh, is a good one or not, and and to make that mm -hmm. choice, you have to assess the future. You have to make a call on what that future might look like. I remember reading one fund fund manager saying, "Oh, it was Kurt Nelson actually. It was Ken Nelson. He was saying that mm -hmm. businesses typically have like a twenty year life. Um, you know, they have twenty years to make returns, and after that, they sort of fade, fall, and something else rises to take their place. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of an interesting way to think about it as well. When you think about how many companies have actually generated great returns for more than 20 years, it's not many. Small, small group of stocks. Yeah. Um, right. Well, we've been going for 50 minutes, Jens. I think we had a few more things to talk about. We might park those for, for next time. Sure. And this this might be a good time to uh, to call it. Uh, Graham, anything else to add or well, can we can we sign off? Nope. Free to leave, early mark. Free to leave, wonderful. Okay, well, thanks for your time today, Graham. Thanks for, for joining us. Thanks, Gaurav. And uh, John, thanks for not standing up, and thank you for, for your time today as well. I might just, that might be my departing gesture. <laughs> and for everyone else, quick, uh, stop and stop and turn off. Thanks for listening. <laughs> thanks, Gaurav. <laughs>